This is a production of NASCAR Dosage, made by the fans, for the fans. NASCAR Dosage, for the fans, by the fans, for you, the fans. Welcome to another episode. for take two of uh, our interview with Brandon Varney on the NASCAR dosage podcast. I almost said the NASCAR hotspot podcast. Wow. That's great. Um, nice job. Nice job. Yeah, no, I haven't, haven't had that podcast going in a couple of months now. Um, but here for take two of NASCAR dosage podcast with our interview with Brandon Varney. Uh, we're going to have him introduce himself again and explain his start in racing going to hear a lot of reiterations of stuff i think uh hi my name is brandon varney i'm 19 years old from richmond michigan i'm a fourth generation racer and just thank you guys for having me on the show yeah for sure for sure we're uh definitely going to try to make sure everything's working this time and so far it is uh, i was gonna say do i need to ask if you're recording this time nope, or i already got it recording <laughs> already got it recording made sure I that. Give you that kind of shit <laughs> but uh yeah tell us um what got you all into racing and basically how you got to we'll get to how you where you are now in steps yeah well I started well my family started way back in 1955 and uh, we've been doing it every year since um like I said I'm a fourth generation racer so my great-grandfather did it my grandfather my dad uh now me and my little brother are now doing it too so um, I started back when I was eight years old, 19 now. So I've got 11 years experience under my belt. So, um, started out in go-karts, uh, started racing up in, uh, the Michigan thumb area. Um, won a couple, won a couple, uh, races doing that. And then, uh, we kind of got bored of that and moved up into a full-size late model. And in our first year of competition, wound up actually winning a championship and then went touring series racing the next year, finished third in points in that. And, uh, we've been kind of just doing our own thing the last couple of years. Uh, we've won some select races um, and now we're trying to branch out and move up into the Arkham and Art Series. I'm going to interject really quick because of course, as everyone's going to know, we did this interview once today and there was one thing that you mentioned earlier that was really, really interesting that we had talked about and that was the wait for you to, to move up. What it took to actually kind of get your, you know, your family's been in it for a long time and had a lot of involvement, I believe it's with the ASA series. Um, why do you think it took a little while to get their, their backing to, to move you up? Well, which part as far as moving up from into it? As far or, as moving up into full size cars, moving you up into full size cars, kind of becoming part of the family business, if you will. Um, you kind of had to, to claw your way, continually asking before they gave you a real honest shot. Yeah. We, uh, when I was little, I kept asking my dad, uh, if I could race and, uh, I, he kind of started getting irritated with me after a little while because I just kept pressuring him and pressuring him, uh, asking him, well, when do I get to do this? And finally, one day, him and my grandpa cracked and they went out and bought me a go-kart and it just kind of stemmed from there. So it took me a little while to dig and claw to ask him, but they finally broke. 
how long how long did it take for you to move from um carting and all that up to a full size full size car i think we i think i started running go-karts 2011 2012 something like that um and then it took i think we ran for about five five or so years um we only ran about a half half season after that in go-karts and then um we went and bought a late model and started testing with it uh, just to get me acclimated. And I was only 14 at the time. So we weren't really ready to take me racing at that point. Um, Cause my dad didn't really think it was, it was time. So we went to some shorter tracks that were close to home and uh, just got me used to being in a car. And then we went and cut the front clip off of it and made it a full, full blown, uh, just awesome weight model and went and started winning out of the, out of the box. So now one thing we didn't ask earlier was where was your first win and what was that feeling like? My first win was actually my first ever race in a late model. Oh, so, <laughs> starting out on top. <laughs> yeah. There was no, uh, there was a lot of, a lot of downs after that, but we, that was an interesting night because there weren't really all that many cars, but we finished high enough to be up front. And I think we actually crossed the line second, but the leader got disqualified for being just massively underweight. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, that doesn't, that's, that's not how it works. <laughs> no. So we did very well for our first, our first outing and it just got kind of lucked into the win. But uh, I mean, as everybody knows, a win's a win, no matter how you win. Win's a win, man. Yeah. But um, then we ran a couple, couple more races in between that one and the next, the next win. Um, I think we finished like second or second and fourth, kind of all in between there. And then we went and won the second race, and that one was a very, very well deserved one. We started all the way in the back, and in just a thirty lap race, wound up. Uh, driving all the way to the front and led by half a track at the end. So, holy, we had a very good win that night. And we won one more race, I believe, and locked up the championship that night, too. So, that's awesome. Where was, uh, was this all the same track or where was this throughout? Yeah, th this was at a uh, formerly Spartan Speedway down in uh, Lansing. Yeah. Uh, it's now Corrigan Oil Speedway. Okay. All right. Yeah, that one's, uh, I've heard that one a couple of times. I haven't heard much about it. So mm -hmm. what, what would you like, how would you describe the track? Like what, what characteristics? It's kind of a reverse D-shape oval. It's got a straight front stretch, a real tight one and two. The back stretch arcs out real wide and turn four is really narrow. So it's kind of a very, very odd shaped quarter mile racetrack. Oh, yeah. Quarter mile. That's, yeah. That's mm -hmm. definitely not a, the most ideal shape for that no it's not a very easy track to drive but once you do get a handle of it um there's only one line around that place sounds like a lot of uh with a lot of oh wow that just muted myself i'm looking great right now yeah where's he going cj's looking professional as always <laughs> you're still muted bud
I apologize for that. Um, I realized my laptop's dying. I, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I didn't mean to distract me, buddy. <laughs> we're doing great today. All right, we're just we doing are. fantastic. We're off to flying start. <laughs> um, so you do you do that? You win your first race ever, and that you start in late model car, and then how long do you do that until you start thinking ARCA? We ran, well, that was in 2017 that we won the championship. Um, we ran 2018 in the CRA Little Mile Sportsman Division. And like I said, we finished third in the championship in that. And then uh, 2019, 2020, we're just kind of off years. We didn't really run for points or really run a full schedule. We just kind of ran the races that we wanted to. Um, and then 2021, uh, I got a phone call from Bill McAnally of all people to go out to California and be a part of their inaugural uh, BMR Drivers Academy. Um, I was gonna ask you more about this earlier, I mean, you touched upon this. Yeah, we uh, went out to California and did that deal at All-American Speedway uh, out in Roseville. And that just gave us, that gave me the feel of being in a big heavy ARCA car because they're so much different as far as weight and height uh, compared to a late model. Um, obviously it's got four wheels and a steering wheel and motor, so it drives just like anything, but um, just the way that things transfer over, um, the transfer weight so much differently than a late model. So it gave me a good feel of what to expect and what to look for. And we fast forward to uh, the first week of August and I get a call from Ron Drager, the owner of ARCA. And he calls me and he says, well, I have an opportunity for you to run a start and park race at Winchester Speedway if you want to do it. And I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> why would I not? So um, he gets me in contact with Andy Hillenberg, who is who I ultimately went, uh, ran the race with. So talk to Andy. And he wanted to do a start and park race. And I believe it was only like $2,500 to start and park. So we didn't really want to start and park, but if it was enough to at least get some experience in the car, we, we were going to do it anyways. Um, it's, a seat. it's most important. Right. So we kind of sat and thought about it for a couple of days. And we thought, well, if we're going to do this, why don't we do it right? And we scraped together all the money that we could and what we could obtain at the time um, only allowed us to get halfway through the race. And we show up on race day and I have never raced an ARCA car. I've never been on radial tires. Um, I hardly ever shift on restarts in a late model. So that was new to me in the ARCA car as well. If and I then back you up really, really quickly, because this was something that, again, we talked about earlier, but I really, really enjoyed hearing your explanation to some of the younger guys that we know are listening before I get too, too far in the story. That jump from running karting and becoming so used to karting and kind of cutting your teeth and, and getting your racecraft nailed down, that first time you go out in a full-size stock car, that very first time you're out there on, you know, 3,400-pound or roughly you know, V8, like you mentioned, you're, you're shifting gears and stuff going up uh, through your restarts. 
What, what is that like? like? Walk some of the new guys through once you're on a, a full-size car on slicks for the first time. That That is so much different because, um, as I explained earlier, you can run a go-kart and you can slip and slide and kind of get away with a lot more things. And um, there is no weight transfer in go-kart. Um, it's all real nailed down to the ground, just slipping and sliding. And then once you get into a full-size stock car, now you've got a five-point harness. You've got a full containment seat. Now you've got a whole composite body surrounding you and full-face helmet. And, now and a you've roof, got, which you never and, had before. Right, a roof and now just a small window that you get to look out of. And everything kind of just closes in. And it feels intimidating at first. And you just kind of ease yourself into it. You drive off into the first corner and you don't really know what to expect, but then you feel the car kind of load up on the right front and then you feel it kind of moving around. Well, then you don't get that feel in a go-kart. You feel the car start to transfer, transfer load totally differently. Um, and you have to be a lot more subtle with your throttle inputs because in a go-kart, it's just kind of stomp and steer. You couldn't really but, spin it out of the corner in most carts to begin with. You right. just don't have the power there. So making that jump, it's there's so much more finesse involved in driving a late model that scares a lot of young kids because they get into it and they expect to get right back to the gas, just like you would in a go-kart. They wind up spinning the car out. Well, now they're too nervous to get back to the gas. They don't know what to do. So the easiest thing that I had found to do and luckily having my dad being a, a good coach for me, um, he raced for several years. Um, he taught me just don't get in there and stab the gas because he'll, he'll spin it out every time. So um, learning to ease it into the corner and then drive in a little further and a little further and a little further. Just and then finding your limit. Right. And you, you, you gain that confidence, but once you gain that confidence, you're like, okay, well, let's see what I can get away with. And then you try and do a couple things and you might get away with a, a thing or two here and there. And then that one time you slip up and it just gets out from underneath you and you spin it. It's like, okay, well, now I found the edge. And you kind of just have to back yourself in between those two points of spinning out and being on that ragged edge using the new tools that you have underneath of you. I, I really appreciate when you had explained that earlier and I had to make sure that I mentioned it again to really drive that home because you did such a great job in explaining just, it is so different. It's almost like things start to happen slower. You know, you need to be much more precise, but not to, to derail your story. So you finally get that call to, to come up. You guys are scheduled to run a half distance race. Yeah. We, uh, we get to Winchester. Like I said, we're only supposed to run half the race and we unload. We get the car prepped for practice and strap in, take off, and we come in after the first five laps and we're P7. So there was 20-something cars there and we were top 10 already off the trailer. Never, like I said, like I said, I had never raced in an ARCA event, never been on radial tires, none of that. I knew, I knew nothing. And to come off the trailer, just totally fresh, excuse me. And to be seventh on, on the chart was so 
so rewarding for us. So we come in after practice and we remained at uh, P7 for pretty much the whole, whole practice session. We come in and Andy pulls me aside and he says, well, told you I'd get you to halfway. He says, well, why don't we, why don't we go the distance? Why don't we see if we can stretch this out? And we didn't really, at the time, didn't have the means to stretch out the race as far as we did. Um, but pit strategy just fell into our lap and we got very lucky. And we wound up running all 200 laps, um, finished on the lead lap and brought the car home sixth. And we were at the end before the final caution came out, uh, we were contending with the likes of DGR and Venturini um, with just a small team. And uh, like I said earlier, a lot of people kind of discount uh, Mr. Hillenberg's equipment and say, well, his stuff really only starts in parks and only starts, only finishes about 12th on back. And I, I think I, I personally believe they're a lot more capable than that because we, we proved it. Um, we proved it there at Winchester that we can run up front, we can be fast and competitive and their stuff can win if it needs to. Now, you met. And you mentioned running up with Venturini and DGR. It's your first time in a full body stock car. And mm -hmm. you're running up with these guys that finish more times than not, no lower than fourth, fifth place. Right. And just try to explain like your thought process on this. You're like, I mean, you might not have been thinking about it while you know you were in the heat of racing, but yeah, everyone, you know, says this about Hillenberg's equipment that, you know, it's not the best and blah, blah, blah. And you go out there and prove that literally first time in a race, in your first race in ARCA. Mm -hmm. Like, just what was, what was the thought process of that? Like I said, everything was just so rewarding about being able to go out and do that and perform that well. Um, because I had no expectation. I had absolutely no expectation for that race. I, I wanted to go out and run laps, get used to it. And at the end of the day, just learn. I wanted to learn what those cars were like. And I had no idea that 25 laps into the race, we're going to be racing with these guys. So now I'm racing with Parker Chase, who was in the Venturini car. I'm racing with Tony Bridinger. I'm racing with Taylor Gray and Pad Moffat. We're all side by side, nose to tail, duking it out for position. And in my head, at the first moment in my head, I'm just thinking, oh my God, we're racing with DGR adventure. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right. So Reality it really, set. it really did for about a good five laps. And I'm sitting there just kind of freaking out like, oh my God, we're actually contending and we're doing good. And then just kind of had to really smack myself across the face real quick, say, okay, well, now we need to get back into it and forget about that car being Venturini, forget about that car being DGR, forget about who's in that car. That's just another car. You need to get by it. So um, the racer kind of came back to me at that point. Uh, the fan, fanboy took a back seat for a minute and, uh, uh, had to turn the racer switch back on and uh, go back to work there. But it was definitely very, very cool to race with those guys.
Yeah, that sounds like it would have been an absolute blast. And like, obviously, we'll talk about Michigan here, you know, in a little bit, because me watching the race, it kind of took me a second to register it. But I'll I'll, mention, I'll bring that up in a second. I thought I had my glasses on. Wow. Um, <laughs> I do that so much. Um, I know CJ had a few questions that he either didn't ask or wanted to ask again. So I'll, I'll let him do that. And then I'll talk about I'll bring up Michigan. Well, so the only thing that after we talked earlier um, that had come to my mind and you know, we were talking about um, the the prospect that you really have right now to continue to move up into you know, ARCA, maybe full time. You never know what the future kind of holds. Have you ever raced on dirt? Was that ever anything I, you had messed with? The only thing that I've raced on dirt was a go-kart. And at that level, it races like asphalt. So there's no comparison. I have yeah, never throttle over on go kart on dirt. <laughs> right. I have never slid a car sideways and had to trust it. So I've never raced on dirt, never run a road course. So uh, if we were to move up full time, that'd be a lot of things that I'd have to learn. Well, you certainly got the naturally natural ability behind you. And I know that the questions that started to come to my mind earlier as you were telling the story was and walk us through it. When you got to Michigan, you got the call to head up to, to MIS and, and actually run the next round and on a track that you've never seen before, very big racetrack and very fast. Walk mm -hmm. us through what that kind of took and how that behind the scenes, as much as you can, really the dealings were to get you into that role. Yeah, that was, um, I kind of got up. The phone call came about just kind of as, well, why don't we see if you guys can do this? And if you can't, we understand. We, like, again, Justice Winchester, we sat back and thought about it and we really wanted to do it, but we just, at the, at the time, didn't have the means to. And just, well, again, last second, last minute, we finally pulled everything together and uh, brought all our chips in and we wound up uh, being able to afford going and lap one coming off a of turn four now we're running fifth <laughs> like there again it's just this absolute absolute dream that i even got to go there and partake in something of that level um, and i know a lot of people don't get to do that and i'm very privileged and grateful to do what i do um but it was uh being a hometown racetrack uh, hometown crowd, um, being from Michigan, it was just an awesome experience to have. That, it's got to be so surreal. Just just putting that thing fourth gear to the deck and, and actually getting, you know, up to speed at Michigan. And we know that you know Michigan was. At, there were a couple instances where there were, like you said, just just race and deals. But one yeah. of the things again that earlier when we talked about a lot of people myself included never racing wheel to wheel at 185 miles an hour you're know, starting to flirt getting closer to that that 200 mile an hour mark and moreover than that you're so close to each other we hear so often about the draft and for you having that great result at michigan you know we, we touched a little bit more on it earlier but i really wanted to get back into that because that was such a fun thing to hear you describe how do you think including that element of aerodynamics and side force and you know, taking air off each other's spoilers really played into your favor in learning how to race a track like Michigan. Well, like, like we talked about earlier, it became such a tool 
it wasn't just the draft. It, it, you could use it to your advantage and it wasn't a hindrance. You could, um, like I, like I had mentioned before, you get just that perfect scenario. You run up off the corner. You've got momentum on the guy ahead of you. You get a good draft and you catch him at the right time. Well, there's so many things you can do with it because you can choose to stay behind them and push them down the straightaway or stay real close and not, not use up your stuff. And, or you can get that good run and pull out early, but then that's when you run the risk of you pull out too soon. Now they come down and side draft you. And then you kind of play that jockey jockey for position deal uh, all the way down into the corner. Um, and the learning curve, you just get steeper because like, early, you know, when you run late models and stuff, right? Like you're never really going fast enough for the arrow to play such a huge advantage on top of, as you mentioned, this bigger, wider, you know, more powerful arc card. You're also having to learn how that aerodynamics really plays a factor into everything. It, it just makes your result that much more impressive that you are able to, to find that speed and use that tool. Like you said earlier, it's not a hindrance, it's a tool. Right. It, it was really kind of just learn on the fly. I, ha I had no choice because um, like we talked about, we got to the racetrack and originally there was supposed to be about an hour and 45 minutes of practice and they cut that back. And at the end of the end of the day, it wound up only being, you got three laps of practice. Go, go figure it out. And um, just send it. <laughs> right. Just send it. So just gonna send it. Totally <laughs> <laughs> so, um, broke his concentration. <laughs> <laughs> so I hop in the car for the first time. And I go down pit road, and I'm just kind of thinking to myself, "It's like I'm gonna, I'm gonna be wide open by the time I get off the pit road. Like this is stupid. There's no lift. Do not lift." <laughs> no. I was like, "This is stupid. Totally foreign to anything I'd ever done before." So come off a of turn two and grab fourth gear. We're flying down the backstretch. Well, I thought we were flying. We we're only doing 120 miles an hour at that point. But, <laughs> but then we really got up to speed and we came off a of turn four and we're doing 180 miles an hour. And I had never done that before. So it was just immediate, just shock of, first of all, oh my God, I'm doing almost 200 miles an hour and then oh my god i'm an mis oh my god i'm in an arca car and just... so many things it's like a perfect storm of finally this this dream starts to you know culminate in front of you work so hard for right so it's all there in front of you and like i talked about earlier that fanboy had to take the back seat for a second um like all right now we got to focus on these next two laps and see what this car is capable of at the moment and Go out there and run two laps. I didn't really think I was pushing it. I didn't think I was going very fast at all. I didn't really know what I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest with you. No real frame of reference to go off of you know last right. Michigan before. I had absolutely no clue what I was doing. Um so I believe there was 22, 21, 22 cars on the entry list. And come in after those two laps of practice and we were sitting p8 which awesome. which again was phenomenal i thought you know, that was great how much how much of an absolute 
Okay, so this is your first time on a track bigger than what half a mile, right? Yeah. yeah. So you go, you're basically running the hometown NASCAR track, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you you come out of the corner doing 180. Obviously, you're gonna go, you're gonna fly into turn one doing 180, 185-ish, you know. Um how much and you you mentioned, you know, the fanboy had to take a back seat, but how much all of a sudden did it kick in when you were flying down the front stretch you're like i'm actually running racing on michigan right now <laughs> like because i went i was there for the cup race uh on sunday that weekend and then i was also there for faster horses weekend to where when i crossed over into the infield i'm like i'm actually standing on the track right now like my <laughs> i'm walking on the track like that was a surreal feeling for me i can't even like explain to even or even think about like the process that was going through your head when you were when you were going around the track you're like i'm up to speed in a stock car at mis right now like oh yeah it was yeah. uh it was so it, it really did set in just kind of immediately because as far as the speed goes and not knowing what i was going to get into because what they did for practice is because we had 20 cars they sent us out in two groups of 10 just to ease congestion for practice so i'm sitting on pit road and i'm all strapped into the car and i'm just waiting for the first round to get over with that's the worst time oh it, it really was too that's the worst so, time they're waiting <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm just so anxious and fired up and I'm, I'm ready to I'm just ready to go to see what, see what this is going to be all about. And I hadn't seen any cars on track yet. And all of a sudden I look up in the mirror and I just hear this, I hear this car, but I don't see it. So looking up in the mirror and all of a sudden you see Drew Dollar and now you don't see Drew Dollar. <laughs> and he's, <laughs> he's just, he's gone. So it's like, I'm going to be doing that in a second. <laughs> so it, uh, it was just, like I said, it just, it put me in just this real quick state of shock. Like, Oh my God, I'm going to go do this real quick. So it's almost like you practice so hard to repress that like moment of joy because you have a task in front of you. And so we fast forward through practice. One of the questions I wanted to ask you again earlier was um, you're up at those speeds, right? And now you're in a, a fully purposefully set up, the equivalent of a super speedway car for ARCA. I mean, other than when they run, you know, the, the restrictor plate tracks, that's the fa- one of the fastest tracks that you guys go to. So one of the things that I noticed with especially stock cars um, is that you kind of have like a little bit of sway on the straightaway, a little bit of, you know, like you, you see Indy cars, especially sometimes they set the wheel a little bit offset to the right so that you're straighter in the corners. Now it's your first time going flat out in a car set up like that. What difference did, did you feel? So we talked about you made the jump from car into late model, now late model to truly professional level upper echelon stock cars. What was that feel like for you? Those first few shakedown laps? That was interesting because, like I said, interesting in a good way or bad way. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was just kind of you it all slows down just everything every every step you take it slows down more and more like we talked about with the late models you jump from a go-kart to a late model well now that slows down well you jump from a late model to an arca car and that slows down even more you know so, you're 185 like that speed you're, you're maintaining that speed so your reaction times to things 
may become less, but the car is so sensitive that I get exactly what you mean. A lot of people don't really understand that. You get faster. It's almost like you don't, you don't feel it. You right. don't notice that, it. No, that critical thinking time, you have so much more of it. Because um, the pace, the pace is so much more drawn out. The speeds are higher, but the pace is so much more drawn out. So, yeah, we're doing 185, but the car next to you is also doing 185, and you're going to be doing that for about 20 seconds. So <laughs> you, you look over, and he's still there. Then you look back, you look over, and he's still there. <laughs> it's like, well, when do we get done staring at one another here? So Yeah, you find that advantage. The one other question that I had thought of from earlier that I didn't ask was, so for me, when I finally got into full-size cars, now I had a headset in my helmet. That was a whole new experience. Now you look at Arca and they're starting to, to groom you getting into Xfinity and trucks maybe. Like as you start to move up, having a radio, having a spotter, that's a normal thing. Was that something that you had experienced before Michigan or even Winchester? Oh yeah, we, we run radios in our late models. So I've been accustomed to that for the last couple of years now. Um, me and my dad, my dad spots for me all the time. So um, I've always constantly got somebody, at least in my ear. Um, and actually, I was lucky enough at Winchester and Michigan to have uh, Andy Hillenberg in my ear both times. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. So I was I was very fortunate to have him in my ear uh, for both races. Um, and it, it felt like being at home. It really did. Um, because everybody on that team, and Andy included, um, was just so, they felt like just your ev everyday, regular racers they didn't feel like this you feel at home feel comfortable yeah they didn't feel like this high profile you can't talk to me type 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 of people they were they're very down to earth very very fun people to work with um and just all around amazing people now i want to back up real quick you mentioned having family and friends at the track what what was that feeling like of like oh my god I'm running, you know, big track and I got everyone here that's like been there with me every step of the way. Mm -hmm. It that was really cool because it felt like half the town of Richmond was there because I came back home after that weekend and uh well, we own a tire shop in Richmond and um people come into the tire shop all the time and uh everybody that was there at MIS came into the shop and said well that was awesome loved seeing you race and it's like every day it was a good 20 30 people i was like how many how many of you were there <laughs> <laughs> I don't realize how many friends you have until you really start being successful on like one bigger scale that that's right. like how um the either no it was that next weekend i ended up actually uh seeing your mom over at um john's place and she like at first you know i didn't say anything to her and then i finally go up and see her and she like looks at me and i'm just like he got a top 10 she's like he got a top 10 like <laughs> <laughs> like it was it was so cool to like see like her her reaction to it and all that it was that, that was like proud mom moment like kicking in extremely hard <laughs> i i wanted to share that with you because i wasn't sure like how she how how excited and all that she was when she saw you uh, we uh as soon as we got done with mis i just we drove we drove straight home 
Um, yeah. We're only about an hour and 45 minutes from the track. Yeah. So um, I got home and I think we watched the race that same night and just kind of sat on the couch and watched it. And uh, like you're saying, it, it did seem like a very proud mom moment, even sitting and watching it at home because she was there at the track uh, that day and got to watch it in person. So um, unfortunately, I didn't get to see anybody after the race. They Because I got into that wreck with 25 to go, yeah. it was like mandatory. You got to go to the infield care center. Yeah, no so, joke. You don't have a choice. Yeah. yeah. No matter what, you got to go to the infield care center. So they had to take me no matter what. I didn't have a choice. So I, unfortunately, like I said, I didn't get to see anybody. I didn't get to say thank you or uh, be appreciative or nothing just kind of seemed like I got out of the car and disappeared, but. I mean, hey, you know, obviously that's part of racing. And I do want to note that when I watched that wreck happen, I was like, I, oh, you know, the car doesn't look too bad. It's a little, it's a little beat up. <laughs> it was miserable. <laughs> I bet that the thing probably drove like garbage at that point because it was so beat up. Well, Very sad race car. <laughs> no, what had happened is the guy behind me i don't know where he got it how he got it doesn't matter had a massive run behind me and uh as we turned off into turn three uh he put it right on my left reporter panel and side draft me real hard and it sucked the car around and i wound up getting hit in the driver's door and it actually ripped the panard bar out of the car so the rear end that's terminal. <laughs> the yeah. rear end was moving around at least a good foot, foot and a half. Um what's funny about that is uh get the car fired up because it was sitting at the bottom of the racetrack and finally get it fired up. And Andy's in my ear and he says, Well just go through pit road. He goes, Don't even don't even stop, don't even worry about it. It's like, do you see that this thing is kind of dancing? <laughs> you spun out about 30 times coming to pit road when you're in the seat. <laughs> it's like, sorry to overrule you, I said, but you might want to tell these guys to come over the wall because I'm I'm stopping. So I stopped in the pit box and they they checked it out and they said it would have run the rest of the race. Um they just didn't know how bad it was. So they put whatever two authorized right side tires they had left on the car i think they went flat when we spun and uh going down pit road again and i could still feel this thing just kind of every so often just jerking back and forth and i didn't really know that the panard bar was broken i knew something was broken but i didn't know it was <laughs> that <laughs> so um like gone broke <laughs> yeah so we get ready for the next restart and I'm starting in the back again. And we take down, take off down the front stretch. And I don't even think I got to third gear. And I kind of just backed off and rode at my pace for the rest of the whatever 20 laps it was. Because um, it, it, it wasn't going to do anything beyond maybe 100, 120 without spinning itself out. But Finishing the, race. Yeah, finishing the race at that point was our main objective and we still came home uh, i believe only five laps down and finished in the top 10 should have probably finished about fifth or sixth but i mean those days are going to happen i would say yeah you were running the fifth sixth spot 
all race it seemed like so i was like i was i was as someone who hadn't met you yet and you know just heard stories i was very excited for you mm-hmm. so like when that wreck did happen i was like please be able to finish like just right. just be able to just be able to at least run, the car be able to run <laughs> like, I, I thought it was done i really did because i didn't know how bad the hit really was it didn't feel like a bad hit um kind of wrung my head a little bit but i mean anything's going to do that when you get hit so yeah um just kind of wasn't sure if we were going to make it or the car was even going to be drivable at that point because when i got hit in the door it spun me all the way around and now i'm facing the front stretch again but all I see is a lot of white and a lot of orange. <laughs> There's three cars here and two of them are on fire. And I said, my odds are not very good right now. So uh, I start kind of, as I'm still sliding down to the bottom of the racetrack, I'm just kind of looking around, making sure my car wasn't on fire. And uh, thank God it wasn't. So fired the thing back up and that was it. There you go. That's awesome. And I mean, like it, it, sometimes that's some of the best team building in and of itself, just getting a car to the end, you know, especially where you're a young driver and, and Annie Hillenberg's been around for a while. And sometimes to, to know what it's going to take to get a car to the finish, you know, that's something that going forward in that progression in, in your career and, and even with staying with that team, let's say you guys did go full-time next season, kind of knowing for that team, pan hard bar breaks, these are the steps we can do to, to fix it and remedy it. And I think that would kind of foray into this next question, which is how much of your future do you really know for sure? And is there anything you can talk about as far as your plans going into 2022? Uh, 2022 is kind of looking, we don't know yet. So we we're trying to work on something at the moment, uh, getting ready for next year. Um, we're not sure if we're, if it's going to happen or not. So, um, like I said, it's still in the works, but um, this is the time of year to do it. So um, we're going to continue running our late model program like we've been and hit some select uh, super series shows, uh, some crate shows, and maybe a couple sportsman races. I know this year to round the year out, we're going to go run the Glass City at Toledo um, and a Jeg Serie All-Stars Tour crate show at IRP. There's a possibility of running Salem this year in the ARCA event. And then we're going to run the Super Series race at Winchester for the Winchester 400. And that'll round our year out. That sounds like an absolute blast. Like, just being like, yeah, we're going to go do this track, this track, two of them being like historic ones with late models and such with Win- or with uh, Salem. And then uh, IRP, of course, you know, that, that track's, you know, got plenty of history to it. Yeah. that just sounds like an absolute blast just being like oh yeah we're gonna go run at these tracks that are like pretty big maybe not in size but in like you know name definitely a lot of competition too and oh yeah the the question that i had that was last earlier um we're looking at you having right on that cusp of just finally making it like we had said earlier that nine to five is being a race car driver whether you make it to even ARCA, but in truck series, Infinity, those guys that even if you just stay at that level, that is, that is your job. You know, you are truly your nine to five, your source of income is you are a professional race car driver. As someone whom 
have seen a lot of young guys come up through the sport and, and try and coach them as much as I have um, with my past experiences. For you, what advice would you give to a younger Brandon? Running cards, dreaming of getting into full-size cars, what would you say to him? Well, like, like again, touched on it earlier, uh, just take a breath and relax because there's no sense in rushing. And um, there's a, too often you see these younger kids coming up and they're just kind of thrust off into the limelight. And a lot of them kind of just burn out. They burn out too quick. And most of the time, the kid deserves to be there. And it's unfortunate because um, a lot of them are very talented. They just, they started pushing and pushing and pushing too soon and they fizzle out and people just kind of take whatever money they have and then they're kind of just shoved to the side. So breathe and relax and don't rush, don't push because there's no sense in rushing off into failure. Giving yourself room to grow. I love it. And I thank you for answering that question now twice today, but you know, I, I knew that what your answer was going to be, and it's really important for, you know, again, a lot of the guys that listen to this podcast, a decent number of them are young guys, maybe just starting to get into karting and dreaming of finding that sponsorship money, dreaming of finding that way to get into a full size car. And I, I, I love that advice when you gave it earlier, still give yourself room to grow. It's, it's solid advice, man. That was a very, that was a very mature answer that not a lot of drivers probably under the age of 28 can give that was that was a very like veteran maturity level type answer and i absolutely love that no it's just there's no sense in no sense in pushing because uh like i said the more you push the more you're destined to to, to fail unfortunately i guess like there's there's kids that have made it i think harrison burton started i mean i know it's harrison burton um but put the name aside he started racing late models, I think, when he was 12. So 12, 14, he was somewhere in there. And he was racing in Winchester in a super late model and uh, contending and running up front. Um, so there's kids that can do it. And it takes sometimes that little bit of trust in somebody else to, to kind of bring you along and cultivate you. Um, or sometimes that kid's just that good and they'll make it on their own they'll have no problem um but it's just unfortunate to see too many too many kids and too many dads with money that force their kids and push them and rush them and it's uh it's just a sad 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 deal to see sometimes we've definitely seen our fair share of uh you know uh dads with money getting guys into xfinity and cup series but to not go that direction um, I'm going to ask one I didn't ask earlier. Um, who is a driver that you'd say you look up to? Driver that I look up to, as controversial as it may be, um, I love Kyle Busch. <laughs> I, I knew he was going to say that. <laughs> as soon as you said controversial, I was like, yeah. oh, I know who it's going to be. <laughs> I love him because there's – so much of a lack of personality in the sport anymore and they're killing it and i don't like it because if you've listened to any of our episodes we've said that numerous times there i don't i don't like it so i like the guys that get out there and boast their opinion no matter how vulgar it may be um if 
you need to hear it, you're going to hear it. And that's how I've always been. If, if it's wrong and I don't like it, then you're going to know that I don't like it. So okay. honest, honesty is always like just the best way to go about it. Sometimes you just got to be straight to the point and not, you know, dance around certain questions that come your way. It may get you in trouble a few times and Kyle's had his fair share, but yeah, I mean, we yeah. saw that today, <laughs> but that was for different antics. That was for different antics that happened. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot of different circumstances. Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, especially where you're at this high level of competition. I mean, it, every team, every single person that unloads those cars at that level, psychology is a huge part of it, right? Like people see Kyle Busch and they're probably not going to race him quite as hard because they know what's coming if he doesn't appreciate you know, what you've done. You know, mm-hmm. it, Pretty, I, I can hard. totally... <clears throat> Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the comes in the pit, pit straight was a little bit questionable, but bit. you know, I can see why Kyle Bush would be somebody that you know, especially you would look up to because sometimes making yourself known at the track, and you never go out searching for trouble, right? Because you have to run with those guys every single week, but kind of making it known how you like to be raced by racing others the same way. That's something that Kyle Bush definitely, I think, exemplifies what the sport needs just a little bit more of. Mm. Because, I mean, as I was growing up uh, racing go-karts and racing late models, um, my grandfather, of all people, is one of the biggest uh, influencers of don't tell people how good you are because they will tell you when you're good. There's no sense, oh, in, yeah. Yeah, there's no sense in telling people, oh, we're, we're going to be good today. We're going to run up front. We're going to win. And then you go run 19th. Yeah. three laps down so just go when do you're, thing. <laughs> when you're good they'll tell you yeah and then um well uh oh what i'm blanking on like one or two things that i asked earlier i know i know one that had popped up to me well, i guess while you're thinking on it um was how, how far did your family make it in racing out, out of curiosity i know you mentioned your yeah. fourth generation driver were there any other you know your, your grandfather your father that maybe made it close to the level that you're at no, not really. No one ever, I guess, pushed to make it that far. Um, this is really the biggest push that we've made in motorsports as far as trying to uh, achieve something, um, achieve any sort of growth. Um, I know my grandfather back in the 70s, uh, 70s or 80s, uh, he raced at MIS 2 in a ASA race. Oh, wow. And, wow. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the history or not, but uh, he actually wound up wrecking there and crashed and his car caught fire. He wound up uh, getting burned really bad there. So that was uh, 30 years ago, though, 40 years ago. But well, I mean, without safety <laughs> barriers, you know, that, that'll, that's a very likely thing to happen. No safer, no safer barriers, just a regular old fuel cell and an aluminum body. So Yikes. did he go on to race again after that? Maybe I would hope. Oh yeah, he raced, but he just didn't go to anything that big. Uh, and he was really <laughs> last minute, last minute pushing to get to that track anyways. And you know, at the time that he uh, wrecked, um, there was like 30, 36 cars and he was running ninth and he wow. started in the back wow. because he didn't qualify. He didn't practice. And, uh, <laughs> he just he showed did, up on race two. Quite literally just showed up tagged along to the back of the field and drove all the way up to ninth so but he didn't do anything that big after that no. but that's still really really cool 
this was another one. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Finish these. No, you, you go ahead. Okay. Okay. This is one. Uh, I'm going to steal this from Corey LaJoy's podcast real quick. Name a track and a car that you'd want to race at. Ooh, I like that one. A track and a car that I want to race. Oh, that's a tough one. Any um, car at any track in the world. So that really opens it up. That really does. I would probably stick with turning left. And I want to run a Whalen Modified. I've always wanted to run a Whalen Modified. One of those, probably at Winchester. That'd be I fun. That'd be sounds like it'd be fun. I think that'd be a pretty wicked combination. Hell yeah. That is awesome. That is a that is definitely a more interesting answer for that. I I hear a lot of drivers go basic and say like uh, F one car at Spa or something like that. Like that's such that's what oh, a that's, lot of the, their drivers like are. Every Whoa. that's like every racer's bucket list though. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, who, who doesn't want to fly into Eau Rouge? Like yeah, you know, <laughs> absolutely yeah, exactly. Fly up that uphill, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm from right outside of Boston, Mass. So of course here in New England, there's a lot of modified racing um and seeing them up at Loudon, i've honestly been like dude they sleep on that show that could outshine the cup series any given race that they've ever had don't at me at, yeah. at Loudon, the modifieds always put on the best showman especially tracks oh, like yeah. lee um star i mean up here in new, uh, new hampshire the, the modifieds that's a really interesting answer that's mm -hmm. do you think open wheel is something that you would ever entertain in the future i don't know uh I kind of like the four fenders I got, but I feel that. Um, if anything, I'd probably run a modified. That's probably all I'd ever venture out to because I'm not a real big road course guy. Just I've never been really good at it. Um, so the open wheel and uh, single seater scene, that's never really been a key interest of mine. I, I watch it and I enjoy, I enjoy watching the races, but it's just not my not my uh, forte, I guess. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll end with this one. Then we'll get you out of here. I know we've, we've almost been going an hour here. Wow. This is what happens when, we, you know, the second time around, we think of better questions and get, you know, more unique <laughs> answers and all that. <laughs> um, so we're going to come back to this question. Um, what is one story that you would like to share that really stands out? at your time racing should i st stick with the one from earlier uh up I, to you it's up to I, you i enjoy that one okay so, That's pretty remember that one. <laughs> so we go down to winchester speedway in 2017 to go run a jegs uh cra all-stars tour show and i had never seen winchester before never raced there and knew nothing about the place. It's a common theme with me. Um, but I got a very warm welcome to the racetrack when Jack Smith lost a whole left front hub assembly with the tire attached and then somebody behind him launching it into the sky. And then all of a sudden it was like, there's a tire there and then there's not a tire there. <laughs> so now that tire is about 35 roughly 40 feet in the air not scary and, at all <laughs> no 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 it could come down and kill me at any time 
but like <laughs> saying in front of you you're good <laughs> right yeah, roll bars so this thing winds up leaving the park and it's it's gone it's out of here it uh leaves the park and lands dead center on the roof of a nissan altima rental car <laughs> and destroys this thing but the reason that there was a rental car was because there was a family traveling to Winchester that day to watch the 400 for the weekend. Their RV broke down on the way to Winchester on the side of the road. So they called the rental service. They brought the car out to them. They brought the car to the racetrack and then got it totaled because a <laughs> race car hub and tire assembly totaled it. <laughs> That's got to be, dude, if you didn't have bad luck, you'd have no luck at all type of situations. Right. (laughs) But that, it was, I mean, scary in the moment because it's like, all right, this thing's going to come down and maim one of us. (laughs) But luckily, nobody was in the car. Nobody was in the campground. But uh, just, (laughs) I feel bad for the family because how do you explain that to the insurance company? Yeah, right. No, the insurance, they're going to be like, hey, you parked outside of a racetrack. We don't cover that. You can't go to racetracks at all ever with our... And like, I still stand by what I had said earlier. I hope they got to keep that whole assembly. Like, I can see the team coming back and being like, there's only 10 laps on that left front. So like, you can keep the brake pads, but like, we, we need that back. Oh, man. That is... Dude. <laughs> see, I just think of like a certain... A certain meme or vine when when you said out of the ballpark i'm just like gone forever you know gone forever. <laughs> oh man uh, i know the one you're talking about yeah yep that's why i didn't yeah. finish it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty hilarious i mean like it, it seems like that family should probably race cars because if you didn't have that luck, you'd have no luck at all. So. <laughs> hey, they yeah. wouldn't be parking in, outside the track anymore. <laughs> well, then you know that, that. Then you know the next time the tire's gonna take a rogue bounce and bounce into the infield. And yeah, right. The next rental car that's there. Oh man. <laughs> oh, but at least they couldn't bust him with being like, "Hey, why did you run at the spectator drags before the main?" What are you guys out there running the rental car for? <laughs> they flipped the car during run, uh, spectator drag. <laughs> well, we definitely kept you for longer than last time. Definitely got some more interesting answers to some more interesting questions that we had. But um, you want to shout out your social media, where people can find you and follow you. And uh, we'll, get you, we'll get you out of here for the night. All right. Well, all of our social media, we pretty much do through Facebook. You can find us on Facebook at Varney Brother Motorsports. Well, thank you once again for joining us on the podcast and being our first guest. That's a current driver. No shout out CJ once again. But (laughs) (laughs) anyway, yeah, thank you. He's got better stories than I do, for sure. And certainly earned a fan, like I had said to you earlier, but it really stuck by it, man. Just seeing your excitement and your enthusiasm to, to move up with the ranks and your willingness to work towards it and you know you, you earned a fan at least in me but I'm, I'm very very excited to see where 
you guys can go and, and see how far you really get through the top levels of motorsport. Well, I appreciate hearing that. Thank you very much. And thank you guys for having me on. Yeah. Kyle and his mishaps that he had. And um, I guess we can jump to really when all the other playoff drivers started having issues. Cause that was the highlight of the night. It seemed like every, or like half the playoff drivers had issues. Yeah. You had McDowell wrecking out early. Um, Bowman and Byron had their problem, uh, you know, while under commercial break, because, you know, NBC and, well, basically broadcasting oh, networks of NASCAR is, you know, perfect. I mean, it, it, it always happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it always seems like as soon as the companies go to commercial is when shit hits the fan. Yeah, they're pretty much like, hey, buddy, hey, they're not looking anymore now, okay? Yeah, awesome no, happy. I like how... <laughs> I will say though there was only one thing about the race that really truly bothered me and I did not like and I'm going to take a second to make it a point Kyle Busch really got under my skin I know you liked that interview I know we had when we talked before you had said that that interview with Kyle was something that you thought was valuable to the sport and what bothered me wasn't even what he had said it was his driving you know yeah to me in the pre-race, right, in the, the driver's meeting and stuff, they tell you these are the openings in the pit wall. There's this, 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 and this location that everybody has a fire extinguisher there. So if you're on fire and you got to bail out, this is where you go. The crew chiefs know that info. Come off the racetrack. He's angry. He's pissed off that he just completely screwed up the first round of round of 16. You saw the cones. You saw the cones were there. Like, yeah, you got a little bit narrowed field of view as a driver, but like, he knew they were there and he blew through them anyway. And there's people on the other side of that cone that are, that are working. You know, that's a crosswalk in a hot pit, like a hot pit area of the racetrack. You need to know where you can and cannot walk. That really made me angry. Like that bothered me a lot that he thought it was all right to just you know, blatantly, I'm angry. So now all of a sudden the world's revolving around me. He blew those cones. All those people just scatter out of the way. I mean, to me... He almost did. And a guy that's pushing a car to four tires, you probably just came from the Goodyear trailer getting those mounted and balanced and then marked for where their assignments were. Like that, I don't know, man. It made his interview to me afterwards mean that much less because it was very much reminiscent of the Kyle Busch everyone has grown to hate where you're on track actions, even though he didn't blame Austin Dillon. You know, like we had talked about a little while ago, like, he didn't, he put the responsibility of that wreck himself on himself as he should have, you know, but as soon as you do something small like that, I don't know, somebody that's a two-time cup series champion, like Kyle Busch, I don't think you make a mistake like that um, very innocently. I think he was just angry and didn't care enough. And that, that was the one thing that I really truly made me have disdain for that race was seeing that. And like, We've seen driving antics out of him before, but I don't think it was to this level that he was that pissed off behind. Because it's not a joke. I mean, you can't even get yeah. out of the car by yourself unless the whole damn thing's on fire. That's how much they take seriously people being around a hot live racetrack. Yeah. And like, I, <clears throat> I got to make sure I word this correctly. I still view the interview as something that you know provided personality that we don't have a lot of these days 
and I'm going to reiterate right. myself before, you know, I hit the recording button because I'm, I'm a dumbass. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> we still love you, buddy. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, the interview was great. We need that personality wise because a lot of the drivers are all, you know, oh, you know, thanks to my sponsors. Thanks to my team. You know, thanks to my owner, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, you know, they won't they won't go into, you know, they won't give their actual thought process. To where Kyle was like, car drove like shit. I drove like shit. You know, we wrecked. Not the three's fault. You know, at least he took blame. Yeah. I mean, yes, he, he threw should. some off on the team, but he also took blame for himself. So in that regards, if you if you take away the, I mean, we probably don't get the driving antics without the interview. We probably don't get the interview without the driving antics. But if you take away the driving antics, it's a great, it's a great quick right. If you take it out of context. You know, yeah, you just listen to it for the sake of what it is. And I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think that personality is a wonderful thing. Case in point, how Larson drove the end of the race. But to me, right, we, we did just talk with Brandon, and you guys will hear that in a little bit. Um, which, by the way, is I know you're going to cut that little last bit out. You should just put the beeps over when we swear. Just actually have like a little tone somehow. Well, I can, I can, we can get away with everything except for F words. True. That's what we I just think away. it'd be funnier sometimes if it's just like a slew of like beeps. And someone's Beep. like, I don't know. You know? <laughs> um, get back to it. I think that when you look at the driving antics, though, somebody that's supposed to be held to the standard of a two-time champion, I don't know. I saw them both happen at the same time. It's, it's tough for me to take the context of it and make it a value because it's something that has been clearly traumatic to the sport without needing to explain further people being injured um, when they're on the side of the racetrack, you know, so that, that really bothered me, but I will say when it comes time to pave Darlington, I hope they do it in sections. That was really, really fun to watch with that. The new pavement. I mean, there's like you saw with Kyle Busch and Austin Dillon coming together. Like not only is that raise, right. That, that was, that looked like a probably good, like three or four inch little ramp at the oh, yeah. start and finish of the paved areas. You're already fully loaded on the right sides. And then you hit that little bump. So the car goes through extension and then compression again. So as it's loaded on the right rear, like you just, you're peeking out the slip angle of the right rear tire to try and keep it together. And all of a sudden it's pool table, smooth, a lot of grip just in time for, as you're trying to drive up off the corner to have the car drop out from under you and you got to catch it all the way to the wall. Darlington's always had such character as a racetrack and the surface and, and having seashells literally like poking out through the pavement. Um, I, I really, think that's what makes Darlington great is that yeah. it's, not only does it have the egg shape, but it's also like you also have to deal with like the, you know, three to four inch elevation changes coming out of the, the corners, coming into surface. the corners, you know, it's, it's yeah, an it, actual racing surface. Well, the like surface it's, itself has character of the racetracks that we love in the sport. And I think that rather than do it all in just one clean shot and now the whole thing is smooth again and it'll wear in how it wears in. Yeah. I hope I hope they pave the whole thing in sections because that would be really fun to watch and just add just to what Darlington is. Different parts of it, you know, one part here, one part there. That's I I hope that's what happens when they do like you know start repaving sections like they did with Turn Two. I hope that's what happens. I, I hope they don't do a full. That that would is do it. Would track ruin this, the racetrack for a little while. That would it, it would do, ruin it for a yeah. little while. It would it, it would run like any intermediate, but you know the drivers are going to be more on top of each other than before. Well, and the thing is, it's not, it's not the current generation of NASCAR engineering. Look at what they did about to do to Atlanta. 
right? Hmm. Somebody that has, has seen how those racetracks actually, like the, the physical changes they go through when you do a full reconfiguration like that, it's sure. almost as if you just built the new racetrack, you know? And like Darlington has built and been the same since the beginning. You know, the fact that the banking is so like dynamic as you go from the wall down to the apron and, you know, that cross section of where the, the actual grip is, the banking is, and you have to run up against the wall. And, you know, that, that's from a different generation of, Side note, he's good to go tonight too. So cool. So are you guys like actually friends off the racetrack? I meant to ask you that. Um, I haven't met him yet out of the or out of you know this, mm-hmm. but I obviously know his mom quite a bit from being over at my buddy's house. Cause okay. his, his mom is seeing uh my buddy's dad. So okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah so I, I've I've how many times uh, i don't even know how many times i've been over there but i think all but like one or two times that they've you know had something going on she's been there and we've talked so so some yeah. sometimes we have like the same conversation but most of the time it's different conversations and all that you know yeah it's fun it's fun that's cool i'm sure he's getting a good laugh out of this right now like <laughs> <laughs> i hope he's laughing <laughs> but damn dude <laughs> that is funny that is I, haven't so funny. Good, I haven't had a good screw up like that in a while <laughs> it's been a it's been a fat minute i'm not even gonna lie that's Dude, hilarious. not even not even when we were doing the the podcast with troy and all them did did that happen so this was this was a first <laughs> he's gonna get on and i'm gonna be like all right i'm gonna make sure my dumb ass is hitting the record button this time make sure that it's working and then we'll get we'll, we'll apologize and be professional and then and then, you know, I'll be, I'll be an idiot real quick and then we'll get back. And now that I knew we know how the conversation went, it should be fairly easy to, to replicate that. He seems like a pretty genuine, you know, non-scripted, yeah. candid kind of dude. But Oh, yeah. I also think that when you saw the way the end of the race played out, you know, and what that racing service really did, that's what gave Kyle Larson, I think, that launch down the back straightaway. Everybody's always like, oh, if I had one more lap, I wish I had one more lap. Not only did Denny he almost need, didn't that, need win, that one more lap, he almost no, he it. almost had him. Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. I mean, what made that that last string of laps work for him, I think really was the dynamic of how much the racetrack changed from end to end in that new paved section. But that that was a big win for Denny. And I need to apologize because I had him going out in the first round. Oh, last I said, week's podcast. I said he had to win the at least one race in each of the first two rounds if he wanted to even sniff the round of eight. So obviously, you know. He's put himself in a good spot, obviously winning, so he's in the next round. Um, hopefully that gives him some momentum. I still don't think he's a championship threat. No. No, I don't I don't think he's that level still. But in regards to that final, I'll say five laps, because that's when Larson really fell back, and then all of a sudden he just went, my tires are gone. Trying to save. I'm just gonna send it. (laughs) Every day is turn one. (laughs) Every day is turn one. Dude absolutely drove. I mean, he literally drove the wheels off the thing. He threw the thing in the fence in the and he's in his element in a place like Darlington. I know he was your favorite last week, and I kind of played devil's advocate to just disagree with you for the sake of disagreeing with you. But the realistic view on everything is quite simply anytime you have to be that close to the wall and be up on cushion, if you will, and you're There's really only trying, two like, to three guys I trust with that. Larson is the number one by a far. Larson's the number far one. Cry. 
that was a uh, great, Redick, great finish. Reddick is two. Yeah, uh, I can see Reddick. Bell, Bell is three. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the three that I trust to be, you know, four to three inches away from the wall. And it that's a track that lends itself to it, you know. And I drew, I think it's fair to say that as we look at the next two racetracks that we're coming to, I really do think we start seeing people earn their second career wins and whatnot too. Christopher Bell is somebody that I think a place like Richmond, he gets his head wrapped around it and starts to get, you know, the momentum down and how that racetrack needs to flow, how you need to have that car set up and balanced. He's been there a handful of times now, but that 20 car has got speed. Um, 20 car does have speed. I'm just worried about him against the rest of the playoff drivers. Right. And like, he doesn't have experience. Everyone, it seemed like half the playoff field had a crap shoot of a day. I mean, here, yeah. I'm going to pull up because I just, when I made my post race post, all I did was highlight the uh, the uh, playoff drivers. So, obviously, you had Kyle Busch wreck. You had McDowell wreck that we mentioned. Byron eventually wrecked at one point because he got a what, left front flat. Yeah. He got a left front flat, yeah. threw him into the turn one wall. Elliott basically had the same thing happen to him. Um, Bowman struggled after that early damage in the race. Um Blaney, you know, his left front brake went out and I used a lot of colorful adjectives when that happened because I was watching the race. <laughs> um, I'm not going to repeat those words because there are a lot of them that I cannot say right now. It would be a lot of beeps. <laughs> it would be a lot of beeps. It'd be a lot of beeps. You know, it, it, it's more just like. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. I just saw Chris using his mouth and his hands and absolutely no sound came out. Are you a, like a wizard? That was insane. His I face to, actually I, turned red in his own little tirade to himself just now. I hope everybody knows that. That was, I was so frustrated in so it, many like ways when all, I saw that. All the oh. chase guys, right? If you had, if you didn't have bad luck, you'd have no luck at all. Like it seems like almost all the, the playoff guys well, were the people who had issues. You well, know, it makes you wonder, at, like, how much of those teams already starting to push as you should. You look at it, Blaney, Bowman, Elliott, Byron, Kyle Bush. Those five guys are all guys we expect to make it to the next round, no problem, right? Or at least, at least you, know, you think so. Yeah. At least we think so. Historically right? and statistically, in a way, speaking. This year, especially, yeah. So, you know, what did that have happen? That had Kurt Busch finish six. That had Kozlowski, who's mm-hmm. ran like garbage for a majority of the year, finish seventh. Logano finished eighth. I mean, yes, he's still Logano. He's still very fast, but he has not been that good, really, this season. Um, <laughs> he's, he's, you know, he's been, he's been able to run close enough to where his points heading before the playoffs started didn't look that bad of a position to where it looked like, yeah, he'd be around a 12 easy. But, you know. Going to help. And then that also allowed Eric Camarola to finish 16th because there's so yeah. many guys out of the race and so many guys to lap down due to strategy and all that. And Just attrition. You, know, you got to survive. One guy, one guy I want to shout out because he ran top 10 most of the race, and I was really hoping he was going to be able to stay out there because that car had genuine speed, was Corey LaJoy with a 15th place finish. He should have finished top 10. He should have yeah. finished top 10, dude. All day, he should have finished top 10. That was... Yeah. 
that was, was the redemption was that that team that. needed a little yeah. bit. But they still, RWR, again, still managed to hit each other in the middle of the race. Fucking- Are we going to ignore that? I went on like a complete rant last week about how RWR is terrible. The They're, most they- pointless team out there. They have like <laughs> core issues, like their moral fiber is crooked, is how they're I think, I think <laughs> they a lot still of that, managing each other. I think a lot of that comes from, you know, uh, Rick Ware himself. But anyway. <laughs> mm. Have you guys seen my wallet? It's like six inches thick. <laughs> six? It's probably 14 inches thick. Are you kidding me? You know how much money that dude has out of Yeah, I have about 150 black cards in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Discovery like, black how? Cards. How do you have how does how does someone accumulate that much money to where yeah. we, we shouldn't really beat up on them though because clearly they're beating up on each other and themselves enough already? So not sorry, not apologetic for that. Like you, you listen to guys that are really like you know, honest and humble and, and thinking about what it took to get there and how hard they had to work to get there. It's just it's a mockery when you start to drive that way and you start to just be tearing up equipment every single week. Even Josh Balicki, you know, he he races for them, but he's actually got a head on the top of his, or he actually has, you know, a brain at the top of his right. head. And I'm like most of the other guys on that team. I say most, you know, James Davison. Mm-hmm. Oh no, <laughs> um, no, I do, I do like him though, out of out of that bunch too. But uh, I don't understand why they can be so bad. Like why? I don't get it either. And I think that, you know, we, we touched on it last week and it's only going to continue. The silly season is all going to hang in the balance with charters. Clearly. I mean, it, it's just, it's to the point where NASCAR has created a little bit of a problem for themselves um, because people who listened to last week's podcast brought up some good issues to me, which was, you know, I was kind of hinting at you could overthrow in theory, the charter system. If you just had enough open entries, right. You could make it obsolete just by that simple theory alone. There's it's, only it's, one issue with that and why it'll never happen again. Right. It's about the money. It was about the financial stability because it was at the time that they were toying with, you know, obviously that this happened years down the road, but when you're at a level like the cup series, you financially and marketing wise are planning years in advance. Anyway, they needed something to keep the sport viable. If you don't have a title sponsor, you know, we saw for a few years, it was kind of like a musical chairs of who was the title sponsor of the cup series, just like IndyCar where Nobody could tell you who the title sponsor of IndyCar was since it was IZAR, right? They didn't want to have something like that. They wanted it to be, this is the cup series. This is how we keep financial stability within the sport, even though we don't have one. Or is Verizon before IZAD? No, Verizon was was, after IZAD. It was IZAD, and then it was Verizon. Verizon, and then it was, there was something in between there, I felt like. Was there? I don't even remember that. But you get, I don't need either, but that's my point, right? Yeah. Nobody remembers like, oh, so it was Winston Cup, then Sprint Cup, then Nextel Cup, then Monster Energy Cup, and then you get, maybe I'm wrong. I, I probably labeled it wrong, but that's my, my point, right? Yeah. That, what you talked about, like, why the charters will never go, never go away because of money. That was the whole idea to begin with. And that's what I was wanted to clarify. The charters are never going to go away. That was what NASCAR needed to do to keep financial stability in the top level with the prospect coming that there wasn't going to be a single title sponsor. There was going to be several presented partners or whatever they've got. So it's, you know, Geico and Xfinity and Coca-Cola and, you know, like splitting the cost of that title sponsorship to everyone. But needless to say, Corey LaJoy's run also kind of showed like, even when you are a low budget team, 
if the right racetrack and right situation presents itself, you need to capitalize on it. That's why we're so hard on Rick Baird racing, right? <laughs> you guys have a chance to go out there and do something with it, and they're just squandering it. And they're just acting like kind of spoiled in the way that they're driving and their respect for each other on the racetrack. In regards to IndyCar, it was uh, Verizon up until 20... Oh, 2019. 2019 was the first year of NTT. So okay. 2018 was the last year of Verizon. So. Was there anyone before Verizon? Did they no. just go straight from IZOD to Verizon? It went from IZOD to Verizon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because even before Verizon that. For, I think IZOD was the sponsor until what, 2010, 2011? Something like that. And there was somebody before IZOD even, but thank you for clarifying. Well, that, that was, that was it, the split. Yeah, it was just after the split. So I don't even know if they had one at that point. And it might have still been just IRL, the Indy Racing League, which is now the defunct name. But that, thank you for clarifying that, because that, that was my point, right? That was That's why the charters exist, because when that happened, I think NASCAR grew weary of that you are suddenly now just the NASCAR Cup Series. You're not Winston Cup. You know, you're not Sprint Cup. Like, that, that marketing avenue was going to go away, and that makes it a little bit less lucrative for people because you're not coining a phrase that NASCAR fans are going to use constantly. That's the kind of stuff you pay millions of dollars to figure out, right? You know, like you want people to be saying the company's name all the time. That was the charters were the solution to that. The charters were so that the top level still had money infused to it and still had true monetary value so long as people were interested in the Cup Series. Um, and this, this weekend's race really proved why that's a little bit, of, again, a glimpse of brilliance. You know, the racing was great. That finish was great. I hope the rest of the season goes like this. Um, you know, we, we go to Richmond next. That's going to be a track that I think some of these guys, like I mentioned earlier, you might see somebody pick up their second win of the season in these, this very first round of 16. Yeah. I, um, it's going to be hard to go against like four guys because there's four guys that can win and probably will win. And it's, Hamlin, he's good at his home tracks. Hamlin's good at mm -hmm. his home tracks. Um, obviously, Larson, he's got to win there. He had speed in the spring and then just absolutely fell off. Um, Truex, he's won mm -hmm. there. Kyle Busch, he's won there. It's hard to go and against I, those four guys. And I would also add a fifth in there just for the sake of, because it's already happened, and Alex Bowman. You know, Larson yeah. started to fall off, but Bowman was, he won Richmond earlier in the season. He, he did win Richmond earlier in the season, but I mean, he had to hold off the field for seven, eight laps, which, yeah, you still have to do that in order to win a race, which still circumstantial. I mean, I get yeah. what you're saying. You know, that if, if it has a similar um, flow to how the race had Sunday evening, you know, you might be a, a little bit tall of an ask for him to have to rise to the occasion that way. But I mean, lightning does strike twice. He did it once this season. If he does it now, he's locked into the round of 12 and that momentum will carry you. And it's a Hendrick car. You can't. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's weekly though. Been like the slowest guy out of those four. Right. Which I'm not disagreeing that, you know, they, they've had struggles, but at the same breath, right. Hamlin went from leading the regular season championship to losing it in the last handful of rounds. So now he's having success at the right time. I mean, Larson also went on a tear from absolute hell. So, you know, Oh that, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's a little I, I think that's the, oh, the one insane. So that's definitely the one car that you would have to be living in a little bit of a fantasy world to not think that's probably the only one car on the field 
that I would go as far as to say is guaranteed in the final four. I just don't see Larson as a driver cracking under pressure. He's very much, you know, to go back to, what was it, 2017, I think, Rolex 24 or 16, the Iceman Scott Dixon, that was his teammate. He said he learned a lot because of how his composure just did not change. Didn't matter if he was hopping into in the morning or he, he, like the way that Scott Dixon carries himself and you do not fault when you're in those high pressure situations. Kyle Larson is not only someone that has possession of that as a driver, he's mastered it. You know, he, he, I think the five car is the only one you can pretty much guarantee is in the final four, unless like it's a truly terrible streak of races that no one saw coming. I mean, and yes, we saw it last year with Harvick, but at the same time, we're going to Vegas in the round of 12 where Larson won earlier this year. Talladega, unknown. You know, it's, it's Talladega, and we've talked about that before. Um, we're going to the Charlotte Roval. Larson's been really good on road courses this year, obviously, with two mm-hmm. wins. Um, we're going to, what, Kansas in the round of eight where he should have won, you know, pit stops and all that at the end of the race made that interesting. Uh, Texas, granted, it was a different package, but he kicked everyone's ass in the all-star race. And then we're going to Martinsville, where he finished fifth or sixth and actually had speed on Martinsville for once, where he usually doesn't. And then we're going to go to Phoenix to where, yeah, he didn't have the winning car, but he passed more cars than anyone else all day by going to the back Mm -hmm. of the field twice. So... I think if you're looking at, and then, you know, we're obviously going to Bristol in the round of 16 to where that man has been eluded of victory so many times. I think oh, he's yeah. won there, what, once? Has he won there once yet? No, not in Cup. No, no, no say, I don't Cup. think he's won there yet. Yeah. There's a lot of been, tracks, believe it or not, he hasn't won yet. Yeah, you know, with all the wins he has this year, you'd you think he'd won everywhere. It's, yeah, some people lose sight of that. You know, he went like one, Kyle Larson went like one win per season for like four or five years. You know, like he, he had like that, what, just that. He was a Kurt Busch, ironically. Three or four wins. Yeah, that was a year where but he really truly showed. An outlier, yeah. And then he choked that right. away, but anyway. Well, even um, that, the team, you know, what I guess I mean is Ganassi, the team didn't help. Ganassi had a not so great yeah. program. No, but he he never won this many races in this. Like, he never was this level of a driver yet. That oh, has yeah. not happened for him yet. And I stand by what I said a couple of weeks ago, which is that you can't make him the favorite for the championship because he hasn't done it yet. But all the, obviously, all of the potential is there. And there's a lot of racetracks where he hasn't for the won. Final four. You can't make him Absolutely. a favorite for the championship. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, you know, like you mentioned, it, when you put into perspective, too, the amount of tracks he hasn't won at yet, you know, you, you look at a guy like Brandon Varney, any track you go to that you're successful at, you're like, oh, I need to go back there like next week. When's the next time I can go there to show that I can win at that track? That's where Kyle Larson's head at is at right yeah. now. Every racetrack, for the most part, the majority of them, he doesn't have a win there yet. So that very first win at that track is a big deal to him. He's won everything he's raced on in dirt. Cup Series, that mentality is the same person. In terms of big races on dirt, I think all he has left is um, the Charlotte weekend at the end of the season for World of Outlaws. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only like big event he has yet to win on dirt. And it's definitely made things very interesting. You know, this, this season as a whole, if the rest of the playoffs go this way, I, I really think that when they said best season ever, it, this very well could be, we almost had 16 winners. 
going into the playoffs. That never happened. You know, there's been a lot of really great firsts to send off this generation of car, and it, it, the drivers are, are really showing who's going to be the next at the helm. You've had the return of Larson. You've had competitive racing all year. You've had, you know, I'm going to be biased. Blaney's won more than one race in a season for the first time. As a fan, that matters. Oh, yeah. As a fan, that matters to me. I mean, especially. That's why you Um, watch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You've just had, honestly, outside of like one or two races, you've had great racing all year long. And honestly, those two races are probably the 500 in the spring Talladega race. Maybe like yeah. one or two other races, but maybe. But for the most part, out of the first 27 races, I'd say we've had 23 or 24 good races. Yeah, maybe not absolutely. Great, but at least good races. Entertaining. At yeah. the very least, entertaining. You know, like it stuff that was fun to watch. By, it hasn't been ruined by stage racing and all that either. Which no, I rare at first I hated race. stage racing, but I'm warming up to it. I still do. I don't think they should be throwing a caution for the end of the stage, but that's you know beside the point. I don't think you need to slow the field down. Is my no. my shtick with it? You know what I mean? Like no. you could have the the stages and whatnot, but you don't need to stop the race to do Especially it on road courses. Yeah, at these laps, this is when we count the field. But once you cross the line at the end of stage one. The field doesn't slow down. It's not a yellow. It's just at this lap interval, this is a scoring. This is assigned points there. But stopping the race for the stages, I don't like because it does take a lot of the endurance aspect away. I think Goodyear could step up and you know, get a little bit off topic for a second. I could absolutely enjoy seeing a second tire manufacturer and make it a little bit of a, a war if you're going to have stages because at that point, you've got the equivalent of you know two sprint races and then a, a medium length feature. Right. If you want to break it down as a crew chief is looking at it, they work their way through the ranks. Like, okay, so you look at F1, you look at IndyCar, you've got primary and alternates, bar IndyCar and ovals, because you only have one for the ovals, but that's a different beast entirely. You get different tire manufacturers, you get different compounds. Like that's where you could make something fun. Would you rather have different manufacturers or different compounds? Yes. (laughs) I I think that I don't know, like because a second manufacturer may be tough, um, considering that it's still very vivid in everybody's memory and the monetary aspect of the Goodyear is such a huge investing partner. Would I like to see another manufacturer? Yes, I would like to see a tire work. Do I think it's more likely you just get different compounds? Probably. I don't think Goodyear goes anywhere, nor should they. They did make a good tire, but if you're going to make stage racing, and stop the race, like slow everybody back down at the end of each stage, you're now taking a lot of the strategy away because the tires, they go forever. Basically, what you've been seeing is you pit at the first stage break. Okay, so there's nothing lose, not, nothing lost, nothing gained. Then you maybe pit just before the second stage and split the last stage in half. So like the whole race is planned out for you. There's no opportunity to really gain speed. Or yeah. it, Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't there an all-star race where they had a second compound tire you could try? And it really um, wasn't that much that was, was that in the past? I feel like that was in the past couple of years. It wasn't that long ago. I might be wrong, but yeah, I feel like I feel they like ran it was in the past, two different I feel like it was in the past two or three years. I don't know why, but I feel like that's what it was. And nobody um, used the alternate, I feel like, because Goodyear just didn't have a good formulation. But, you know, you look at Indi- uh, F1, right? We use F1 as an example. They, they have like 10 different compounds that they don't. Well, so he just gestured three. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, right? If you go back 
and some of the, the big F1 fans that are listening will know exactly what I'm talking about. They had like, they had five or is, six. Yeah, they, uh, it was actually had, up to 10. Uh, we're talking about like soft, super soft, soft, medium. Um, they actually had hyper soft at one point. Too. I was just going to say, so the reason um, they had to do that, right, was because they had like 10 different compounds and they were telling the fans it was this particular compound. And F1 was like, wait a minute, nobody cares. You have hard, medium, soft. What you guys choose as those three choices is up to you. Nobody cares about those that level of specifics, right? So it, it, hards nowadays are mediums then. Right. But that's and what I'm saying. Like maybe NASCAR adopts something where like you have a hard, a medium and a soft and let the teams choose, you know, and like do the real testing with Goodyear to figure out what the differential needs to be for those. Like the softs should somehow be like worth two seconds a lap. Right. Like yeah. it should be a noticeable, like big difference. And then you get X amount of sets per race or you have to run. But you know what I'm saying? Like to, to go back to the, the main point we started with, to make stage racing seem like a truly justifiable, good reason to change and stop the race at certain points, as opposed to just score at these laps, you need to put some of the strategy back into the team's hands, make it a little bit more entertaining because I don't like that. It's all it's, for the most part, you just go and run. Race to this point, throw a yellow. Race to this point, throw a yellow. Mm-hmm. And then you guys can actually race to the end of the race, you know. Which is to me, like, I don't think that's the right way to go about it. You could keep them running, at least uh-huh. racing. But if not, why not entertain? You know, I know that's a little bit of a far out idea. but Now, I, I get when, you know, trucks and Xfinity have their standalone races and they, you know, they, they do the cold pit stops. And the same goes for Arco because, like, you know, those teams – and, you know, you mentioned it. Right. It's like, hey, if you don't have the personnel, then why are you even showing up? But also at the same time, it's right. like if you have the money to at least be at the track and, you know, make the payment to be there. Yeah, like that, that I'll understand throwing a yellow out and doing the cold stops. But like in the Cup Series, we shouldn't have that. No, it doesn't have a place in the top level unless, unless, you know, like we listen to, you know, even somebody like Brian talk about how Arrow feels in the car for the first time, right? What's that? Brandon? Brandon, yes. Yeah. You, oh, I, thought you, as, I thought you said Brian. I don't know why. I thought you said Brian. No, but might have just been sorry. The, might have just been the, you know, lag or whatever real quick. I'm a little bit stuffed up this morning too, so I apologize. We can cut that little section off because I don't want to seem rude. Like I said his name wrong. You listen to guys like Brandon talk about, you know, feeling arrow on the car for the first time. That's where you have those sort of elements that you're learning. What should really set the cup series apart is not running heats than a feature like you've been doing. It should be the team is saying, okay, we're going to put you out on these tires. Then we're going to put you out on this compound. And we need you to hit this number every lap. You know what I mean? Like that element, that kind of engineering of a race strategy and that engineering of where we need the car to be and breaking down truly the math that becomes a, a, a strategist for racing. If you're going to throw those yellows, I, I think there needs to be compounds. Like there needs to be something to just break it up. Not this PJ one crap, you know, like make a different compound tire that just, that I feel like would solve half of everything. Notice how uh, Darlington doesn't have PJ one or resin down on it. Nope. Nope. Like I mentioned, we don't have the modern era of thinking in Darlington, and it should stay that way. It should stay <laughs> don't that way. These, the F1 fans will always be like, oh, please don't tell the track. 
please don't tell go the racetrack. It's a great track. What's it mean? Don't stop trying to engineer everything to be the result you want and see the results of what you're getting yeah. for that racing. And PJ one's just a gimmick. I feel like this has turned into more of like a rant about other tracks and NASCAR problems episode than you know Darlington yeah. at this point. But, but you know, I, I will and I will I will defend us in saying that, right? We are very lucky that we have, first of all, the accessibility to all the different levels of motorsports now, thanks to yeah. like NBC and Fox and you know, people that are broadcasting these races. But you now get a chance to see racing cars is not something that only NASCAR does. You know what I mean? Like racing race cars as a sport, a competitive thing where you're giving these guys a box to work in. This is the rules. This is we're living the gray area. We talk about every single week, but we, we are comparing these things because there are a lot of really good ideas out there. A lot of really good oh, racing, yeah. you know? And like, that's yeah. where we look at NASCAR because we love NASCAR. We're Americans. You know, when you grow up in America, that's like the number one we're, thing that we're you watch. Is, so, you know, we like to watch cars go around in circles. I love it. I love <laughs> it. I really, truly do. But needless to say, like you say, turn into an episode after the interview of just bashing kind of on different tracks and cars. Somebody even like Brandon, I think, would be listening right now and agree. Like once you change the smallest little things, the racing becomes dramatically different. Oh, yeah. The ideas and the rules could be the same, but NASCAR will find a way to race like NASCAR. They're just things is like you say at the top of the show for the fans, by the fans. Like we want to see more racing, like what those other series offer. And that's, that's why my mind always trails off this way. seems like every episode, I'm the one that kind of derails us to be like, wait, look at the, what IndyCar is doing. Reds this is problem is at NASCAR and it's not over here. Yeah, it's the damn thing. <laughs> they seem like they had a good idea, so maybe we should try it. And NASCAR's like, no. Let's sit and have a beer and talk about this. Let's figure yeah. this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, I think we've done enough ranting. We should probably get into some predictions as mm-hmm. I got to get ready here soon. So, yeah, Richmond, one to watch, favorite, underdog, and stay away from one to watch Kyle Bush. I think the one to watch is Kyle Bush. He's he's man, clearly angry. Man yeah. on a mission. He is a dangerous yeah. dude to be in front of. Yeah, <laughs> I think he he's got something to prove now. And Richmond has been historically a pretty decent race track for him. Um, the favorite, I think, again going a little bit against the grain, I think might be William Byron. We saw a Hendrick Car win there in the spring. William Byron's another guy that's a man on a mission. He knows that he right now he's got the least amount of wins of everybody at Hendrick. You know, I mean, he, maybe Chase, but Chase has at least the the benefit of the doubt that he's the defending champion, right? So his success, you have to presume, will come. Well, you know, he took Byron last week. Um, I did, but how, how well did that work out? <laughs> not great. And you know, like I, I watched this week to see how he does. Um, but again, it's well, the progression of a young driver. And I really do think that when you're at a place like Hendrick, this is why I'm going with him again this week and defend okay. myself a little bit. Because as a young driver at a place like Hendrick Motorsports, the pressure is always on. You can never just be comfortable. You can never just be complacent and think that, you know, you're going to keep that seat regardless. William Byron knows damn well that it, he could be in a contract year, any year. Because yeah. he's young and is not having the results, at least Alex Bowman has stepped in and been successful when he needs to be successful. So kind of goes one of two ways, right? And I guess right now I'm being the hopeful optimist that you light a fire under William Byron's ass to be like, hey, you're the only one not performing. 
now it's time to, to step it up a notch. Um, I think the underdog is Kevin Harvick. Um, Harvick being the underdog simply because he has said that, you know, when he won his championship, they were kind of quiet most of the year. Um, I think he did have a win before the postseason at that point, but they were relatively quiet and just kind of stayed consistent and clean. Again, a guy that's won a championship, and that's why I turned my attention to them because you've proven yourself once. Can you do it again? The one to stay away from for me, though, honestly, might be Denny Hamlin um, because Hamlin now has seen some success. He wants to keep that rolling, and he's shown to be very unapologetic You know, whenever he has – something go wrong. So I, I would stay away from Denny Hamlin maybe because he's on a roll right now and he needed that in the regular season and didn't get it. So now he realizes, okay, is it going to be too little too late? You know, it, it, that's not even like a, um, an opinionative take. I think mm-hmm. that's truly, if you look at how Denny Hamlin, who has been in the sport for like freaking ever, <laughs> now he's historically been he is, he is a driver. He is one of the elder statesmen of the cup series. Yeah. I'd probably stay away from Denny because I feel like if it's in that last lap moment, you guys are all running top three, you might get moved. You might get moved. Um, <laughs> Maybe. I think I'm going to go my favorite, Martin Truex Jr. Uh, he does solid. well. He does well in the 750 package this year. Um, he's won at Richmond before. He's a solid driver that can be competent most of the time. Uh, one to watch is going to be Kyle Busch. Same reason that you had. There is a huge fire lit under his ass that no one is going to want to get in the way of. <laughs> um, I, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to, if I was in front of him, I'm Jack. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be near him. Um, if you go by example, those are the guys that, you know, are going to move people. Like they're not going to be sorry for doing it. They know the game. They're just there to win the game. Kyle doesn't give up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, KFB um, for a reason. Man. Like, yeah kfbb cow oh boy. Bush, baby uh <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, you know i get it like i get the, the, the bad boy mantra and like you're not really like the, that nfg mindset right that full send mindset i i can i get and i relate to that there's a point where it's like how many times have you shown that's not the best way to do this? That is not the, the productive exactly. and winning exactly. way to do this. But uh, um, underdog, I'm going to go with a non-playoff driver. Um, he had speed this past weekend. He can have speed sometimes and, you know, show it off. Uh, I think he's going to be starting up near the front of the non-playoff drivers. I'm going to go Ross Chastain. Interesting. Obviously, he had the one year at Ganassi this year. Um, mm-hmm. he's going into a new team next year. He's going to be trying to show, Hey, I can do it here. We're going to be getting, you know, some notes from here. And as we're, a, you know, second year team, we can take some of these notes possibly and be like, Hey, let's apply it to these. And so I think that's, right. that's where that's going to be. Um, the one I'm going to stay away from and it pains me to say it just because, you know, if that man has no luck or if that man has, doesn't have bad luck he has no luck at all Blaney <laughs> at Richmond it's hard to watch yeah. um he had a top five car in the spring until you know his his team decided to make a horrible pitch strategy call in the second stage um but I think that's he needs to survive he just needs to survive 
and I think you'll be all right. Mm-hmm. He built himself a big buffer, yeah. and he had to use some of that up this week. Um, hopefully, he doesn't have to use up too much of it this weekend coming up. But yeah, I think those are pretty solid picks. I mean, Truex especially. That was one that I knew. I I just know you and I and how our chemistry kind of works at this point where our thoughts are at. Wanted to keep Martin Truex on the table, but yeah. that's another one that I would almost. I don't want to say he's guaranteed a final four spot, but I don't think Truex the perennial really, favorite. Yeah, I, I think Truex is definitely a guy that needs to be watched. If you watch, you know, even Darlington, the consistency. Consistency is key. We said it last week. Like if you have consistent runs, that's what makes you a championship contender. Yeah. Truex, now that you have brought him up, he's another one that I really, really, really think that you cannot take your eyes off of what the 19 team is doing. To Gibbs car at the end of the day. And it's again a proven championship driver. Yeah. And I think that's the best way to think. You got to think who the guys that are consistent. You got to think of the guys in those cars that are consistent. And um, that's really what matters at the end of the day. It's who's going to be your guys that survive the day and get you the finishes that you need. And I think yeah. that's what truly matters in all forms of racing. Got to deliver. You got to deliver. See, uh, you know, let's go. IndyCar, you're not going to see um, – uh, that's a bad example. Literally, anyone can place anywhere in IndyCar. The cars are so much the same at this point. Um, yeah. yeah. But F1, you're not going to see Nicholas Latifi put it, you know, top three in a – even a Red Bull probably. You're not going to see right. – you're not going to see Mazepin winning a Mercedes, you know. It's just not going to happen. Right. But just like you also, you wouldn't expect Sergio Perez to be finishing 11th or 12th. You're in a yeah. good car. You are yeah. expected to take that car and do well. Maybe you're, you know, F1 has that other element of number one, number two drivers, but I get exactly what you yeah. mean. You know, you, you get put into a yeah, car that's solid right. equipment. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you got to deliver with it. Like, look at Valtteri Bottas is going to Alfa Romeo next year. Yeah. You don't expect Valtteri to go out and win in an Alfa. You expect Valtteri to go out in an Alfa and put it in the top 15 and put it in the points consistent yeah. you know and i think i think he'll be able to you know at least be bottom half of the points each race right the whole idea is look at like even 23 11 with kurt push right just to kind of digress a little bit you need that expertise right you need to have somebody that can differentiate between what the driver is doing wrong what the team is doing wrong and that middle ground of the car itself and how the car is set up you bridge that gap between what the team and the driver wants by another driver who has had better continuity getting between those two points. You know, it, you look at, you put guys like a Valtteri Bottas into an Alfa Romeo, like you put a Kurt Busch into the second 2311 car, a guy that knows what they're doing, that maybe they're not going to go out and win in that, but they're going to get you as a team, as a collective whole, as a group closer to that goal. Yeah. And like, that's the most important thing. Um, a lot of teams need to understand is you need that one guy with experience. You just need at least one. And I think that's why Hendrick, you either see them be up front or all the cars are like 12th through 18th. And, you know, that's a very, that's a very rare occasion because, you know, Chase Elliott and Kyle Larson are both very talented, very fast drivers and under very or inside of very good cars. Um, but yeah, when the teams do miss, they miss. And 
I think we see that less with Gibbs because they have three really experienced and really right. quality drivers. Right. Um, Penske, you have Logano, as we know, Keselowski's checked out at this point. But I think maybe Penske's, I think he's still got a little bit more invested. But Penske's got. They're going to be fun. They're going to be interesting. They're going to be interesting to watch next year. Logano's right. going to be the oldest at 31. Blaney's only 25, 26. And then Cindric's 22, 23. So right. that's going to be the one to watch. And then you're going to have Harrison Burton in the Wood Brothers card. And he's only, is he 21? I think he'll be 21 next year. Oh my God, I'm getting old. <laughs> I feel you, dude. My birthday is the 28th of this year, and I'm going to be 27. Yeah. And I, I feel like I'm I'm over the hill I'm already. Twenty three <laughs> here in like two months. <laughs> Nobody likes you when you're twenty three. <laughs> I know, man. I'm just gonna cause problems for an entire year. Not give a shit. I like it. Keep the keep the mindset. Age is just a number. I'm glad to hear there's no changes in you. Every day is turn one. <laughs> <laughs> what have I started? <laughs> I, I, I take pride in a- being. A pioneer of nothingness. <laughs> I think that's a good way to, you know, get the full lap around for the podcast and uh, wrap it up here. Um, we will be recording the interview again with Brandon Varney after this, and that'll be probably before this portion of the show. Uh, CJ, once again, as always, thank you for having on, brother. Yeah, of course, man. It's fun. And thank you for Brandon being on the show, man. Really excited hearing what you know, he's going through, you got a lot of excitement out of me because you can just see the guy really, truly loves this sport. And yeah. to me, you know, whether you ever get the chance to drive or, you know, you're a seasoned veteran, we're all fans of racing at, at our core. You know, we love this. We love being able to be a part of racing every single weekend. It, it, you don't take it for granted. So that's something that he really, I think, projected out in his interview. And I'm excited for him. I'm definitely going to be checking in on the ARCA races a lot more often now and made a fan out of it today. I appreciate his time. And to you, as always, you know, we had a little bit of a technical flub earlier, but you know, we're throwing pains <laughs> with this show. Don't discount us yet. You know, we, we please like, like, subscribe, whatever. We're trying to make this something that everybody would want to listen to, but we thank you as always for having a, me. We had a little bit of a fuster cluck earlier, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's okay. Yeah, yeah. It, things happen, but things happen. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. Everybody stay safe. Yeah. Once again, thank you to Brandon Varney for hopping on the podcast with us today. Uh, I should have this out to everyone by Wednesday latest, and I'll be making a post then. And that'll conclude this episode of NASCAR Dosage. On this week's episode of NASCAR Dosage, we look at the history of the 10 on NASCAR number history. The 10, one of the more less successful numbers of the sport, has a long history dating back to 1949, but didn't have more than 15 races until 1951. But the big thing was, the 10 didn't have a win until Greg Sachs at Daytona in July 1985. The man with the most wins in the 10 is Ricky Rudd with six, which is a great which is great for him as the all-time winner. With that much, but that also sums up the 10 cars history. So let's dive into the stats of the 10 
with a count of 1,452 starts. The 10 only has 12 wins. Those 12 wins are backed by 82 top 5s and 269 top 10s, with an average finish of 21.24. The future of the 10 is uncertain, but in the hands of Stuart Haas, Almirola looks keen to return to the 10 after making the playoffs this season. Hopefully the consistency returns as AA makes an attempt at a run in the playoffs. going to do it for this week's episode of nascar dosage once again thank you to cj pushudo as always for jumping on for an episode and thank you to brandon varney arkham arkham series driver for joining us this week hope to have him back again at some point and hopefully talk about some more racing that he's done at that point but until then this is me signing off and this will be the end of this week's episode of nascar dosage <laughs>